two we don't do this too often how's it going i'm good dan yeah we sat down the last time pretty recently this is like a, a hump day special it's like a half week installment so the way i think of this this bonus episode right here is if you buy the dvd or blu-ray of a movie you really like and then you know most people just want to watch the movie but if you're really into it, you're going to click through all the, the bonus features. If you're a weirdo like me, you might even listen to the director's commentary. This is our bonus features episode for our discussion of That Thing You Do, my favorite movie, our birthday episode. I just had too many things I wanted to dive down into the nitty gritty on. So this episode is for the freakazoids out there like me who really want to just spend as much time as they can thinking about that thing you do and and diving into all the ephemera and the backstories and the extended cuts and all that. And I I have quite a a gamut of topics to talk us through. And because Brian is my co-host, he is required to attend this. Yes. Riding the coattails. Uh, There's a podcast that I listen to that each week they do their like hour episode, which is really like 40 minutes because they got a bunch of ads uh, but then they have started in the last couple months doing something called Wednesday one-offs. So mm. that's what we're doing today. It is a Wednesday as we sit down here to record. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So last week we did kind of a normal episode of The Goods where where we kind of talked through the movie and our, our overarching thoughts and introduced the plot and the characters and the cast and all that. So this week um, we're just going to kind of assume you know the movie and that you know that we really like it or at least i really like it and brian gave it a generous rating as well yeah it's good and so here we're gonna again get into stuff that we didn't get a chance to cover in too much depth so the the agenda is i want to talk about the director's extended cut which is very unusual extended cut for a couple reasons we'll talk about and then i want to share i actually corresponded with some cast members over the past week and share a little bit about that. Um, I want to talk about some of the special features that were created for the DVD and some of the insight they gave me. I want to talk about the incredible oral history article that was published just a couple years ago about the movie. And then I want to do something, this will be a little more interactive, but Brian and I are going to do a deep cast dive, talk about some of our favorite appearances and what else we know them from. Right, so we looked at their pages on Letterboxd that list all the movies they are associated with. Generously, Letterboxd says, film starring so-and-so. In many of these cases, they were rarely the stars. Right, because this, like I said last week, this movie is all secret weapons. They're usually not the stars of their movies, but they're often there and who appears and makes the movie better for a scene or two. But here they're the stars, or they at least have significant roles most in most cases that people will be talking about. 
Then I also want us, Brian, as kind of a creative writing exercise to talk about what we'd like to see in a sequel to that thing you do, should such a thing ever be considered, or even if we would have to go back in time and make it, given the aging of the actors. And then I want to talk about the soundtrack and Adam Schlesinger particularly. Here we go, Brian. We're going to geek out, or at least I'm going to geek out. Okay, cool. So the extended cut. So the extended cut of that thing you do came out quite a bit after the original film. I want to say it was in the 2000s that it came out for the first time on a special release. It was like 2008 or something like that. So that we're talking at least a decade after the movie came out. And it is not a cheap cash-in extended cut. Often comedies in particular, if they have uh, unrated cuts or extended cuts, it's usually just stuff that was wisely left on the editing room floor, but doesn't really offer much substance. But here, we actually do get a lot of substance. In fact, I calculated it out. This extended cut is 38% longer than the original cut. Wow. And I feel like that's a lot. So it goes from... An hour and 48 minutes, including credits, um, up into 149 minutes. So we're talking almost two and a half hours, which is outrageously long for a comedy in general. But, you know, adding over 40 minutes of content is is unusual, I would say. Definitely. Um, I saw the extended cut first, I believe, at least as Dan's digital research would indicate that was the case. Yeah, you left a comment on an article I wrote some years ago and said that you watched the extended cut, and it sounded like it was for the first time. So my my overarching thoughts on the extended cut are that it's not the ideal way to watch the movie, but if you happen to be a big fan of the movie, it gives you a lot more material to enjoy. And I think it suffers as an overall product compared to the really zippy theatrical version. I mean, it's, it's an hour and... Um, 40 minutes or so, almost an hour, 50 minutes, the theatrical cut, but it really moves. It kind of feels like one of those 90, 88 minute movie comedies that, uh, you know, you often see, or at least you used to see. I feel like every movie now is long. Have movies gotten longer, Brian? I think so. You know, it comes in waves. Like a lot of movies in the, in the 60s were really long. You had roadshow productions like Mad, 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 Mad World. We talked about that back when we did uh, Great Race. And then I feel like they uh, got a little more brisk for a while. And then around about the time of Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson's King Kong, all that stuff. It's like, yeah, rare that you get a sub two hour movie anymore. And if it's a big ticket movie, it's probably a lot longer than that. Yeah. Uh, and then I feel like uh, Judd Apatow introduced into comedies like the more lackadaisical hangout vibe that could often stretch much longer than an hour and a half and i think we're still feeling the repercussions of that some like knocked up is like two hours long um funny people is like almost two and a half hours and those are ostensibly comedies so <laughs> ostensibly I, I quite like both of those movies but but they have a little more dramatic element to them too so fair enough um but yeah, I think the extended cut just reflects how much of a passion project this is for everyone involved, but particularly Tom Hanks. It's just like all this material he created that just got tossed to the cutting room floor. But it's I think overall they made good decisions on how to streamline the story. But a lot of this stuff is pretty good and pretty funny. And there's a couple of jokes that are really good. 
that I'm surprised they let get cut. Like there's a line where, where they're talking about Chad's broken arm and Faye says, I've never seen something swell up and, and engorge that fast or something like that. And Lenny says, uh, sorry, Jimmy, or tough break, Jimmy, or something like that. And it's, you know, it's an actual <laughs> scripted joke that didn't make the cut that it made me laugh. So just a couple of the highlights of the extended cut. There's a whole lot more Charlize Theron as Tina, who is the original girlfriend to Guy. There's like this whole weird scene at the beginning where they pass each other on the road and they talk to each other, pretending they don't know each other. But then we see them and it's clear that they're already boyfriend and girlfriend. And we get some exposition about how they met. And we learn a little bit more about how Guy was in the army prior to joining the band. And there's this whole thing where like he thinks they're still together and he's sending her postcards, but she's actually already gotten together with the the dentist and we see some of the dates of her with the dentist they go golfing and they make out in his dentist room and stuff um kind of interesting we get a little bit more context early in the film for a couple of things there's in the scene where they're trying to come up with the band name and they and jimmy just has these really dumb names over and over there's a throwaway line that i never quite understood that's explained in the extended cut where uh, Faye says to Guy, thanks for the breakfast. But like, it doesn't make sense why she would be saying that to him. There's no context for that. But in the extended cut, we see that there's this whole thing where he like gets bumps into her car in the parking lot and as a result offers to pay for her breakfast. Uh, in general, there's a lot more Faye and Guy in, in this. And I think it brings out a little more, especially with Faye's character. One of the things, I, one of my few complaints about the movie is I feel like uh, Faye doesn't get quite enough to do in the theatrical cut. And so I found that pretty interesting. Um, we also get more of like the rehearsal when he's playing, they're playing it as a ballad where it's just kind of like a, almost a meta thing. They're talking about the song more like the structure of it and the tempo and guy, there's some, they lay some groundwork for guy trying to play it fast. And Jimmy's like, no, slower than that. No, slower than that. So it's like kind of getting you charged for the fact that he's going to play it fast at the, the talent show it is interesting when they leave references to things in a movie that's been cut down and then subsequently don't make any sense uh there's a couple ones i can think of in the wizard of oz the witch has a mention where she's like talking to her flying monkeys and she is talking about dorothy and her her friends and she says I've sent a little insect on ahead to take the fight out of them. And that doesn't make any sense because they cut the jitterbug dance number where they're like cursed by a, a bug that makes them dance. So why why leave that line in there? I don't know. Yeah, that's that's interesting. But another one is in the Goonies when like all the kids get back. Uh, at the end, they come out of the like undersea cave and they're back on the beach and all the journalists are there to collect their story and one of them says what was the scariest part of the adventure and i think ki kwan says oh the octopus was really scary but they cut the octopus scene it did it, it's it's nonsense it's like that's the one risk you run making a movie too short is like you got to make sure you got to make that last pass yeah yeah there, and there's a couple other instances of that um in the the extended cut of that thing you do where it's like, oh, that's why he said that thing. A couple other things in the extended cut. 
So there's the the first manager. His name is Phil Horace in the movie, played by Chris Ellis. He gets a couple more scenes, and there's a bit of drama about is he actually going to get the song on the radio? So like in the theatrical cut, it just goes straight from them signing to them hearing the song on the radio for the first time, which, as I said, I think is the best scene in the movie. Probably the most beloved scene in the movie. But there's a little more drama with that. Also, that Italian restaurant they play at, the Villa Pianos. There's this really weird scene that I have to imagine Tom Hanks either like experienced something like it or heard a story about it or was inspired by something. It almost feels like something that would be an American graffiti or something where they're playing and someone in the audience sets off a fire extinguisher. So smoke goes everywhere and like gets in Tina's hair and she gets mad. And then Villa Piano, the guy, the Italian restaurant owner, gets really mad at the wonders. And then we see a clip of Guy and his family reading the newspaper saying that Villa Piano blamed it on the band The Wonders and uh, Guy's dad laughing about how uh, Guy got in trouble. Guy's dad is another one who gets a little bit more personality. He just gets a, few, a couple more like scenes and he smiles a little bit more as opposed to being the very uh, no-nonsense guy in the theatrical cut where he's just always grumpy about something. Right. Kind of like the dad from um, the Johnny Cash movie, Walk the Line, who is then interpreted in Walk Hard. The wrong son died. Is that what it is? <laughs> yup. There's a whole like 10 minute scene. Maybe it's not quite that long, but it feels pretty long. And before their first rock show in Pittsburgh, that really just got trimmed down to the bone. They're like preparing for the rock show. And there's a whole bunch of like awe at performing at this big place. They like count how many seats it is. It's like 2000, some number of seats. And uh, they're just kind of soaking in being in this big stage, which is kind of cool. I like the moments where you like see these normal kids who are like kind of embracing like how wild a ride they're on and how fast it's all moving. But I think the majority of the new content actually comes from the stuff in Hollywood. So there's this whole ending that apparently they were initially going to include, but then what's, is it ADR? Is that when you like re-record voice over filmed footage? Right. Dubbing essentially. Yeah. So um, the very end with Guy deciding to stay and be a drummer in the extended cut, there's a thing where he, remember he jams with the, the jazz musician at the end and he gets some recordings of the jazz musicians like shooting the shit and uh, jamming together in the studio. And he brings that to one of the radio DJs that we'd previously seen in the movie. And the radio DJ is like, oh yeah, if you bring that, that to me and could play it on air, then I'll give you a job as a radio DJ. So it turns out that guy's first job is actually as a jazz radio DJ when he stays in LA, uh, which is a very different uh, implication from the theatrical one where he's just going to stick around and drum a whole lot. Right. And kind of be a studio musician, as, as you said last time. Yeah. I mean, some of the things it's like you can kind of imply or not imply, infer that they happen from what you're given. Not the case in uh, every regard, but a lot of it. Yeah. There's also more of like the party scene in L.A. Um, so one big one is we see a little more of Guy being drunk and stumbling home 
at the hotel and it's kind of like this little bit of slapstick that to me I can see why they cut it it didn't quite land but we see him interacting with Mr. White with Tom Hanks who is trying to go to a party but like guys kind of hanging around with him when uh, Mr. White is telling him to get back into the hotel room and we see that Mr. White is accompanied by uh, a man played by Howie Long and it's suggested that they're a couple going together and this was like a very minor like extremely minor headline or like revelation that oh wait Mr. White was gay this whole time and I don't know that was probably the thing from the like the extended cut that got any attention to to the extent that it did because that would have been pretty uncommon to be out in the early 60s and it probably was like a underground sort of thing you know it's like I think in, in Hollywood in general, it's always a little more progressive and open-minded about such things, but um, that's kind of an interesting detail. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember that from the one time that I watched, so that is kind of a, a change-up. I mean, I, I even feel like that's a little bold, even for, um, like, the mid-90s. Yeah, mid-90s comedy, yeah, to do it with a straight face. Mm -hmm. But that's the extended cut, I mean... Like I said, I, I think it makes it a worse movie, but you're only my recommendation is watch it only if you know that thing you do pretty much inside and out because it just adds a lot of little details into it. So glad that it exists. But, you know, sometimes when director's cuts come out, like the Zack Snyder Justice League, the fanboys are like, it's the one true vision. It's what we should do. But I feel like for a, a breezy comedy in particular, getting that runtime down makes a big difference in the, the viewing experience of the film, especially when it's well edited, you know. And do you know, did Tom Hanks make the director's cut? Is Was it a director's cut? Was he the driving force behind it? That's a good point. Um, I just know it as the extended edition. I mean, I have to imagine that he was heavily involved with with it. One thing I learned from my research on it is that there were actually a few different cuts shown at test screenings. So this could have been stuff that was like saved from test screenings or something. So I, I don't know, but I should look at the the liner notes to see just how involved he was in kind of reassembling it. Cause it, it's not labeled the director's cut. It's labeled the extended cut. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Which to be fair, I mean, Tom Hanks is one of the three producers of the film along with Gary Getzman and Jonathan Demi. So he could basically make it whatever he wanted. It wasn't like he was at the whim of the producers cause he was the producer, you know? So. So I think you could. it's safe to call the theatrical cut the producer's cut. So yeah, it's hard for me to say what I would rate it if I if it were doing, is it good? Maybe a seven instead of an eight. But it's just so intertwined with my love of the original movie that it's, it's, uh, it is what it is. All right, so that's the first thing I wanted to talk about was the extended cut. Second thing, I called this the cast questionnaire. So here's what I did, Brian. I went on my Twitter account and I tweeted at... Every cast member I could find with a Twitter account and s tweeted the question, what is your favorite line or quote from that thing you do from your character or otherwise? So I sent it out to maybe seven cast members I could find and I got two bites. I actually got two replies. So that was pretty cool. My first time interacting with uh, the cast members of that thing you do. So the first reply came from Tom Everett Scott, who's the, the main lead, that's uh, Guy. And he said, 
There are so many great lines throughout the movie that I can't pick just one, but most of my favorites are Lenny's. The camper scene alone is a Lenny quote bonanza. And then he highlights specifically Steubenville, which Steve Zahn has a really good delivery of. It's like they're listing cities they're excited about, and he acts like he's excited about Steubenville. Yeah, it's like Ogdenville, North Haverbrook. By gum, I put them on the map. <laughs> the second person who replied was Jonathan Sheck, who it plays Jimmy. He's the, the grumpy guitarist, and he says his favorite is when he did at the end, I quit. I quit. I quit, Mr. White. And I liked that because I later learned that that was actually the scene he auditioned for. And the reason that he got the job is because he had the idea of singing that line instead of just saying it. So, and they ended up putting that in the movie. And uh, so I can see why that's his favorite. He's like sentimentally attached to it because it got, that's the thing that got him the job. Interesting. Another thing I did to prep for this episode, Brian, is I pulled out the DVD. So there's, uh, I have two copies. I have the Blu-ray, which I actually bought for the screening that we did just this year for my birthday that I talked about in our last episode. And I also have the the 2007 release, the one that has the, the extended cut that also has a second disc that has some bonus features on it. The bonus features honestly are a little underwhelming. There's no commentary track, which was a bummer for me because, you know, I, lis- I actually listen to those and I feel like Tom Hanks would have had so many little anecdotes to throw in there and, and insights into to it. Um, but he he has not made a ca- he has not made a commentary for the DVD. But um, the two that I thought were pretty interesting. So one was called a little featurette called The Wonders Big in Japan. And so this was like a, a 10 minute featurette of showing the time right around the movie was coming out that Tom Hanks and Gary Getzman, one of the producers, had this idea to go to Japan and basically pretend to be the wonders. And they did a live show and they did some interviews as the wonders on a Japanese talk show. And I just thought this was a really charming and funny bit of, of promotion. It made me think of Lost in Translation. This came up fairly recently, but have you seen Lost in Translation, Brian? No, I haven't. So in that, Bill Murray plays a aging comedian who goes and does some promo in Japan for a big paycheck. And he gets to go on Japanese talk show, which is really wacky and stuff. And I enjoyed that. There's also some funny anecdotes about them eating at a fancy Japanese restaurant. And apparently it's like the oldest restaurant in Japan that's still operational. And But they they brought out a karaoke machine halfway through dinner, which, I mean, you know, karaoke is a Japanese word. So I don't know exactly how ingrained that is in Japanese culture, but apparently it's at least a little bit of a thing that you go to a karaoke bar or like it's even just part of your dinner, you bring out karaoke and sing along to it. I don't know. I need to ask Will about that, see if he knows anything about that. Have you ever been to karaoke, Brian? I actually have never been to a karaoke bar. Um, Yeah, I don't know that I've been to a dedicated bar for it. I've done it at various events. It's right. fun. I feel like... It would depend on where you were, whether the energy level stayed up. The crowd, right? Yeah. 
Right. Um, we're going to do a vacation. We rented a house, not at the beach. It's our first time not doing it at the beach, but uh, we're doing a karaoke night at our, our family uh, week away this summer. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Maybe I'll even do that thing you do. That would be good. At least appropriate. Yes. You should sing We Are Number One. <laughs> oh, man. I don't even know if I want to admit this on air, Brian. Do you know that there's a recording of me singing that floating around? Yes, I've heard it. I made one year for Christmas. I made a Christmas album of me singing weird and poorly sung versions of Christmas songs. And there was a couple of bonus tracks, including We Are Number One. Yes, that was the year it was a meme. Yeah. Always a meme in my heart, to be honest. <laughs> R.I.P. Whatever that guy's name is. Uh, Carl Stefan. No, Stefan Carl Stephenson. Gotcha. So the extended cut was one of two times I watched it between our last recording and today. I watched it one more time after that. And that was with the 2020 cast recording. So I said there's no commentary track, and there isn't on any DVD release. But in 2020, after Adam Schlesinger died, who was the songwriter for That Thing You Do, the song, I'm going to talk about Adam quite a bit more here in a minute. When he died from COVID in 2020, he was one of the first big, well-known deaths. There was an outpouring of support, and the cast of That Thing You Do decided to do like a cast reunion slash commentary track. Uh, with the movie playing. So the idea was you could watch live and hit play when they hit play and listen to them talk about the movie as if they were in the room with you. This is when like the Zoom recordings were a big thing. Did you watch any of like the the Zoom recorded specials of TV shows or anything, Brian? I don't think I did watch any of those. I'm trying to remember. But I, I mean, a lot of things tied it in in some way or other like that. Like the Bill and Ted 3 references it's like everybody comes together at the end and it uses that technology so i don't know obviously it's something we all went through so it makes sense that it's echoed in the culture but i don't know that i specifically yeah. watched any of those specials there there was a wave of shows doing that so the one that i definitely watched and remember was parks and rec did like a post finale special that took place during covid times and, you know, all of this is like in very good nature, like we must be strong and we must follow good distancing guidelines and stuff. What's weird about that one is it's been like completely scrubbed. They took it off Hulu. They took it off a couple other places you could watch it. So at this point, I think you have to pirate it if you want to go and watch that, which is kind of weird. Like people walking these things back. Yeah, that's bizarre. But uh, I, I did watch with this cut. So the the people who were on this. So we had. Tom Everett Scott, Steve Zahn, Ethan Embry, and Jonathan Sheck, who are the the four wonders. But they also had some surprise attendees. They had Colin Hanks and Giovanni Ribisi, who Colin Hanks is obviously Tom Hanks' son. And he kind of was apparently helping out with the making of the movie. He had a lot of tidbits about it being made. And he just has a tiny cameo in it. Um, but it was interesting hearing how involved he was, I guess, uh, Tom Hanks brought his uh, family in t to help him out with it. Kevin Pollack, who is a character actor, but he plays Boss Vic Koss. Um, he also briefly shows up on the, the chat thing, too. Boss Vic Koss? 
Yeah. He appeared for, for a minute too, but um, I, I learned some interesting tidbits from this, Brian. So one that I thought you would enjoy is the stage where they do the talent show where guy makes them play it fast for the first time is the same stage. It's apparently this church in LA that often gets rented out when they want to show like a small time stage in movies, but it's the same one from back to the future when in the, the climax, when he plays Johnny be good. Wow. That's pretty cool. A couple other things from this cast commentary. I really like. first of all, Colin Hanks, have you seen anything with Colin Hanks? I know we're going to talk about him in a minute. Yes, I have seen some Colin Hanks appearances. The big one is season six of Dexter, where he plays the antagonist that Dexter is after that season. I had to double take a couple times because his voice sounds so much like his dad's. If you just start like closing your eyes, it'll sound like Tom Hanks talking. It's kind of funny. He looks sort of like Hanks, but he... I think he his face is a little bit more like Rita Wilson's. I think he's Rita Wilson's and not uh, Tom Hanks's first wife's. I'm not 100% sure on that. And I'm not going to look that up because I would feel bad. Let's see. Colin Hanks. Oh, yeah. So he's actually not Rita Wilson's son. Rita Wilson is his stepmother. So there you go. So I guess just coincidence that I think he looks a little bit more like her than than Tom. A couple other bits I liked. So Boss Vic Koss, he's um, one thing that's like almost there as a throwaway in the movie is that he's the mattress king. So that's how he became like a local celebrity is he was the guy always hawking mattresses and commercials and stuff. And then he turned it into a rock show. I feel like that that's like a certain type of person is like the the business guy who like kind of turns it into a local celebrity guy. There's this one around here, Brian, the guy at the back of the van do you right. ever see those ads? FH Fur. I have a lot of thoughts about FH Fur, the guy on the back of the truck. So when they used to use a photorealistic picture of him on the back of the trucks, and it's like he's peeking out the door. <laughs> and that always kind of creeped me out. <laughs> it's like a dude just hanging out. And then they changed the art style and they made him a cartoon, except it's a really ugly cartoon. <laughs> like his eyes are way too far apart in the cartoon. And... I feel like there's got to be some happy medium. Like if they changed it on my account, they got to try again. The one for me, IRL, is Bob, the furniture guy. Around here, they have Bob's Value Furniture. Is that the 800-588 guy? I think so. so oh, no, that's... that's uh, you might be thinking of Empire. Empire Today. I have a bobblehead of the Empire carpet guy. Okay. But no, uh, Bob's Discount Furniture, he has got like a little beard and he used to be in the commercials himself. And then I don't know if he got too old or what, but now they do like Rankin Bass puppet animation for Bob. Mm. Okay. And anyway, I I would like to meet Bob. I, I feel like he is the one likely to have an external life beyond his commercials like Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad. Mm. I'll bet. I'll bet furniture bob is in some shady shit but oh, interesting uh no uh no libel intended or slander well one interesting thing about that is gary getzman who is a producer so do you know anything about gary getzman no so he he uh was a child actor who subsequently became a well-liked and uh prolific film producer and so he's one of the producers here Another thing I know him for is 
the movie Licorice Pizza, which is the latest P.T. Anderson joint, um, which I really liked. Um, it was very much a Dan movie. It's like a teen hangout comedy with lots of sitcom elements in it. But it's based off of Gary Getzman's life pretty loosely. So he's not actually named Gary or anything, I don't think. But um, it, he like when he's a older teenager, he's already just, like trying to wheel and deal in that movie. And he gets a waterbed mattress company. Um, he tries to sell waterbed mattresses. And that's how he kind of got his first bit of wealth after his child acting career. And so this bit, bit where Bosvik Koss is a mattress king is very much directly inspired from him. So this to me is like a, a weird connection between Licorice Pizza, P.T. Anderson into that thing you do. That was like a little bit of a minor mind blowing moment for me. Oh, uh, so was Gary Getzman the writer or what was his role in that thing you do? He's just the producer. So he's one okay. of the three producers. Tom Hanks wrote the movie. Gary Getzman, Hanks, and Jonathan Demme, the famous director, were the three producers. I see. In fact, Getzman does not have any directorial credits or writing credits, to my knowledge. So he's like a behind-the-scenes string-puller kind of guy. And you said that Demme makes a cameo in the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. So Demme cameos as the director of the Weekend at Party Pier beach party spoof movie that that shows up in that thing you do yeah i was trying to remember where i recognized that name from in your big spreadsheet and then i realized he directed silence of the lambs yeah so that's a pretty different film than captain geach and the shrimp shack shooters yeah <laughs> so here's another connection this is a bit of tom hanks trivia so speaking of captain geach and the shrimp shack shooters that's actually based off of something from Forrest Gump. So apparently in Forrest Gump and possibly in real life, it wasn't very clear to me, but there's two shrimp restaurants shown. One is called the Shrimp Shack and one is called Captain Geach's. And so Tom Hanks, that kind of stuck in his brain. And so when he made a surf rock band, he made them Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. Interesting. And then... Um, I Googled it and apparently at the Bubba Gump shrimp restaurant, the real life restaurant that's inspired from Forrest Gump, there either is or there used to be something in it called like the Shrimp Shack special or something like that. That's inspired from that as well. That was also pretty interesting to me. That's cool. I feel like there should be more restaurants tied into movies, like movie inspired restaurants. Can you think of any off the top of your head that you'd like to see? Guess what? It would come from if there were... Breaking Bad? Yeah. They got to make real <laughs> Poyos Hermanos, Dan. Oh, nice. I mean, I guess people don't want to be associated with a restaurant that's really a front for a huge meth operation, but the food looks so good. <laughs> it's like Popeye's, but a little more south of the border. Not the last time Breaking Bad is going to come up this episode either. Right. On that COVID co cast commentary, they also brought out some props that they had saved. And apparently... This was like around the time that Polaroids were becoming vintage cool. And so they had they all had a ton of Polaroids from their time filming. And I would pay like considerable sums to get like a, a nice coffee table book of like all of the Polaroids from that movie and other like making of stuff in there. So I don't know. I don't I don't think a mo such a book exists, but I really wish it did. It's interesting. I I'm only a little knowledgeable about it, but Polaroids, like kind of the 
charm of them in a way is that they only exist once because it's like the film and the developed finished thing is all one frame like you can't as far as i know make duplicates beyond like scanning them okay so a coffee table book of a polaroid collection is an interesting idea it's like a contradiction in terms at least in the spirit of it a little bit Another thing that I liked that I, I only learned in the COVID cast commentary is that the the guy who plays the host of the Hollywood show that we see at the end is actually played by Peter Scolari, who was Tom Hanks's co-host in Bosom Buddies. That's right. Pulling in his people. And was that, I mean, I'm pretty sure that was Tom Hanks's breakout. Was that his like first leading role? I don't know, actually. That's a good question. You feel like I would know that. But that certainly was his breakout, yeah. And then around that time, he did the TV movie about Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Which was like a straight-faced horror drama about... Uh, Becoming Satanist. Yeah. Yeah. Becoming a Satanist who, who did Dungeons and Dragons. Makes Dungeons and Dragons look way cooler and more dangerous than it actually is. Because... Like, I don't know, Dungeons and Dragons is actually a bunch of nerds sitting around with, you know, two liter bottles of Mountain Dew and talking about goblins and rolling dice to see whether it goes 40 feet or 45 feet and hits the other guy in the head or something. There's nothing at all satanic about it. Yep. And that's mazes and monsters. If you're curious to track that one down. Turns out, actually, there's a lot of Demi connections in the film. Um, people who have appeared in his a bunch of his movies because Demi was the co-producer. And actually, Hanks made the movie at Demi's encouragement while they were filming Philadelphia. So he was telling Demi about this movie idea he's been kicking around and, hey, maybe you'd want to direct it or like, who do you think I should get to direct it? And Demi's like, no, you should just do it. In fact, like work with this guy, Gary Getzman. And I feel like you guys together would work well and you could make a, a whole studio, a whole production company. Which, first of all, it's awesome to hear someone say that to you. And it actually ended up working out. That was Playtone, um, which has made a bunch of movies since then. So pretty cool. But the cinematographer was of That Thing You Do is a guy named Tak Fujimoto, who worked with Jonathan Demi a lot, which means that that's right. That Thing You Do has the same cinematographer as Silence of the Lambs. Also has subsequently worked a lot with M. Night Shyamalan who I've been watching a lot of his movies recently too. And so also the same cinematographer as The Sixth Sense. Wow. But you've talked about, at least with me off pod, that cinematographers tend to have very varied work. Yeah, yeah. So some some don't and some do, but it is interesting. Like there is a game, a quote unquote game going around Twitter of like this person, this cinematographer also shot this movie. And the wildest one will always be Dean Cundy, who shot Back to the Future. He shot, I think, Jurassic Park. But he also shot like a bunch. He shot the Garfield movie in 2004. Um, He shot Jack and Jill with Adam Sandler. So (laughs) it's like the guy who shot Halloween also shot Jack and Jill. (laughs) But yeah, I do. I love looking at the catalog of cinematographers and just the wild variety of it one thing that i also thought was really interesting and i wish i could see 
So um, at the very end, when I, we talked about how it's kind of weird where it ends with like Lamar kind of mugging for the camera. So he's the hotel guy who who works there. Apparently, Hanks's original vision and they actually shot this and and had it in a test screening was rather than the, the text cards of what happened to each of the characters, Lamar actually narrated it and said, and here's what happened to the wonders. So like breaking the fourth wall is like the way the movie ended. And that's just wild to think about. Apparently the audiences didn't like it, but I want to have seen that now. I wish they had thrown that in the extended cut. Yeah. So a movie that I've name dropped a few times when we've recorded is the night before, which is kind of a, a raunchy Christmas comedy. And I have referenced it so much just because I happen to have seen it multiple times in theaters because of I like went to see something else, but then they weren't showing that other thing. So I watched it again. Anyway, at the end of that, throughout the movie, there's this character who's like always on the fringes and like gradually it's revealed that there's more and more to his character. And then at the end, he turns out to be like a guardian angel. And the way that Lamar kind of enters the narrative and is like, I don't know, seems very knowledgeable and like has a lot of control over his location uh, I could almost see it ending that way. Like, he t- he, t- he grows wings and he is an angel of some kind. No, oh, nice, yeah. I like that. Yeah, he's he's like a Greek chorus almost or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say overall, I mean, it's not essential viewing by any, any means, but if you love the movie, it's worth tracking it down. The cast COVID discussion and recording as, as the movie goes along. It's It was my first time watching it with that accompaniment and uh my overall impressions just the cast seemed to really get along and like each other and they had really good chemistry and were like laughing jokes with each other and stuff and in particular tom everett scott really comes across as like being passionate about the movie it's like his breakout but also like his crowning achievement the way that he talks about it he just seems like very like uh, it's champion which i was glad to hear him uh, excited about it and also Ethan Embry like hadn't seen the movie in like 15 years. He said, oh, I own the copy on VHS, but I don't really watch it that often. And there was like stuff he didn't remember, whereas the rest of the cast, even Steve Zahn, who's probably been the biggest star out of the bunch, seemed to really know the movie. And Jonathan Sheck, the guy who plays Jimmy, just comes across as pretty awkward. And like, I don't know, not necessarily the odd man out, but just kind of gave a weird energy compared to everybody else who's very charming and personable, <laughs> but not unlikable. Just uh, just a slightly stilted dude. Uh, in particular, uh, Colin Hanks was really seemed really smart. And it's like, I don't know, I guess to be that successful. I mean, I, I guess he's riding on the coattails. You know, it's uh, Nepo Baby. Is that what they were calling it earlier this year? It was a big controversy. Yeah. So suddenly something that's been around forever. Suddenly everybody's got an issue with it, I guess. Yeah. But he, he just came across as really smart. On the topic of things that kind of expanded my knowledge of the movie, there's a really good and pretty long oral history article published by The Ringer. And that had some incredible tidbits in it that I just had never heard before. So I, I'll try to remember to post that link in the Discord. You can find us on thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. And a couple of tidbits. So Alicia Silverstone was actually the first choice for Faye, but she had a scheduling conflict. And then I spent like three minutes after I read that trying to imagine scenes with Alicia Silverstone instead of Liv Tyler as Faye. 
And I think it would have worked. I think it could have been good. As much as I love Liv Tyler in that, I feel like Alicia Silverstone really could have nailed it. It would have been like a slightly different vibe, I think. So I'm going to make an admission here that I don't really know who Alicia Silverstone is. Oh, really? Was she in Charmed? Or what was her movie? So her her iconic role, maybe not her most seen role, is in um, Clueless, the 1995 comedy. Okay. Have you seen that one? That was what I meant. I yeah. I know it's it's a movie that it's a one word C title film. <laughs> I can picture the poster in my head, but I've never seen it. And then she she's been in a handful of other things. I'm gonna go look her up on uh, Letterboxd and see if there's anything else that stands out. Apparently, she was in Tropic Thunder as herself. Oh, she was Batgirl in the Batman and Robin movie okay. from the '90s. A couple other things, too. Apparently, she was also in, looks like, the co-star of that Blast from the Past Brendan Fraser movie that we both had some interest in watching sometime. Oh, yeah. Got to watch that one at some point. Yeah. Another thing is, um, I'm going to talk a little bit here about the production of the song, That Thing You Do, but the way that they actually did it, I'll just go ahead and share this now, is that basically Hanks put out a call for songwriters to submit the song. It was like an open contest. Submit your That Thing You Do. Here's the log line. It's a catchy a one-hit wonder song. And that's basically all. And, and encourage people to submit it. And he said there was a lot of really good ones. And one idea that they briefly toyed with was doing a album that was all of the different That Thing You Do's that had been submitted. Or maybe not all of them, but like 15 huh. of the best ones or something. And actually, one of the other ones makes it on the soundtrack. So, Brian, we were talking, we're going to talk about the soundtrack here in a minute, but there's another song called That Thing You Do. It's labeled I Need You, That Thing You Do on the soundtrack, but that was another finalist for the song to actually be selected. But I think that would have been awesome if they'd made an all That Thing You Do's, like different people's spins on the concept of what would a 1960s one-hit wonder band do with it. But um, another thing I, I really increased my appreciation for Adam Schlesinger is he actually modeled the chord changes of that thing you do off of a few specific Beatle chord changes, which is pretty cool. Another thing, and we, we brought this up and we could tell that this was kind of a mission statement going into the movie, but Chris Ellis, the guy who played Phil Horace, said, do you want me to play him as menacing and seedy and... Um, does he ever actually would he ever actually take advantage of the group? And Tom Hanks said, no, no bad guys in my movie. So that was his quote. No bad guys in my movie. So that was conscious. Yeah, definitely. The last other tidbit that I thought you would think was funny is at one of the county fairs or one of the state fairs, rather, that they filmed at. Uh, some of them got food poisoning from it and including Ethan Embry, who plays the bass player. And when they were one of the days they were filming them performing, he was not feeling well and he ended up pooping his pants and he had to go to Tom Hanks's Tom Hanks's trailer because he was the only one who had a shower in his trailer to clean up uh, before they resumed shooting. So sorry, Ethan Embry, it's out there on the Internet. People don't forget. I think he even talked about it in it. Yeah, <laughs> people don't forget. Did he tell Tom Hanks he was using his trailer? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But I highly recommend that oral history on The Ringer if you are a fan of the movie, because there's a lot of good stuff in there. All right, Brian, we're going to get to one of the interactive sections of this here. So 
uh, called this the cast deep dive. So we're going to look at different cast members and I've called them all secret weapons. So what are some things that we know these people from? So we'll start with the leads. So Tom Everett Scott plays Guy Patterson. I suspect we have the same answer, but what's something else that, uh, let's say your favorite or the thing you most associate with that person, Tom Everett Scott from. Okay, well, he's in La La Land, but I wouldn't have known that unless you'd pointed him out. Looking at his filmography, I noticed he is in multiple of the Air Buddies films. <laughs> and he's not the only one among this cast who has appeared in more than one Air Buddies, Snow Buddies, Treasure Buddies, Santa Paws. Wow. But he was in the most of, of the ones that I saw. What about you? Anything beyond La La Land? Um, no, that's the main thing I know him from. But there's a there's a list on YouTube that is Tom Everett Scott movies ranked, and it has Air Buddies ahead of La La Land on the list, which made me laugh. <laughs> it also says he's in Van Wilder, which he was not the star. Ryan Reynolds is the star. Oh wow, interesting. That movie I remember having an interesting cast. I feel like it's known for being a Bad, dumb comedy, but I'd like bad, dumb comedies often, so right. I feel like I gotta throw that one on sometime. I remember back when I saw it, I thought it was funny. Yeah. All right, Jonathan Sheck playing Jimmy. I don't know him from anything else. I looked at his stuff. He's been in other stuff, not not that much, but did, was there anything there that you knew him from, Brian? No, nothing really stuck out. What I learned from this exercise is just that there's a lot of movies that I've never heard of. I know. So he's been in he's been in 68 movies and the only one I've seen is that thing you do. And there there's a couple others like the prom the prom night remake from about a decade ago that I've heard of. But yeah, none that I'd seen. All right, Liv Tyler playing Faye. So what what do you know Liv Tyler from, Brian? Okay, well, she's in The Lord of the Rings, the Peter Jackson trilogy. She she was on all the posters. I feel like that's her most famous at this point. Yeah. Who? What's her character? Oh, she's Arwen. Oh, okay. The daughter of Elrond. Every you could that could be entirely made up, and I <laughs> you would have fooled me. Every Tolkien thing sounds made up to me. I mean, I guess it is, but like sounds made up on the spot. Yeah. But anyways, you were saying. Well, also she's in Armageddon which might be a Nepo Baby situation because that's the one that Steven Tyler does the like custom credits single. Don't want to miss a thing. We should watch Armageddon sometime because that yeah. is... Criterion. Yeah, it's a Criterion inductee. Yeah. I would say there's no maybe about Liv Tyler being a Nepo Baby. <laughs> like she even admits, oh, I don't have any formal training. I've just been cast and stuff. So it's like, <laughs> I feel like that doesn't happen unless you're a Nepo Baby. Uh-huh. Steve Zahn. We talked a little bit about him last week. Anything, any Steve Zahn projects you want to shout out? I guess you did last week, your, your favorite. Yeah, the one for me is Sahara, which was like his fourth or fifth on the list. I don't know. It's a ways down. There's several ahead of it. What is the criteria? Just like, are they ranked by how much they are logged on Letterboxd? Yes. Okay. So that when you pull up an actor on Letterboxd, it shows all their movies ordered by what is the most logged and so you okay. get weird ones that people have cameoed in 
being at the top of their list, even though you're like, why it's not the, what you would associate that person being. It's like, I feel like I'm trying to remember what it was. There was, there was some where like classic actors were showing up in like the new space jam movie or something like that, because they had a, a small archival footage appearance and that had more logs than any, any other of their movies. But yeah. I also know him from a few things, but the the movie Reality Bites. So that's a very 90s movie that came out, I think, just a year or two before that thing you do. But he plays a gay guy with AIDS and or no gay guy who's worried he's going to get AIDS. But spoilers, he ends up not having AIDS, but he's very funny and charming in that. And my favorite scene of that movie is. They all get stoned and then they dance along to my Sharona in Reality Bites. All right. So did you look up Ethan Embry? Was there anything you knew him from? He, he plays the bass player. Yeah. So looking at the Ethan Embry list, this is where I'm really seeing movies that I've never heard of before. <laughs> like Celeste in the City, The Witches of Oz, All I Want for Christmas, A Far Off Place. So now if you log into Letterboxd, it should show you which ones you've logged. Well, I have for sure not logged any of those. Oh, okay. Uh, timeline. I have seen Timeline. That was a Michael Crichton one where there's time travel. Yeah. Gotcha. But the the one at the top of his list is First Man. So I know that's a Damien Chazelle movie. Is he prominent enough in that that you recognized him? No. I, I might have recognized him in the moment, but he's he's a minor role in that for sure. Um, but for me, the pick is Can't Hardly Wait, which is a very goofy, only a couple years later, um, teen comedy. It's like a last day of school comedy that has kind of gotten this cult status as time has gone on, in part because of the cast. It's just it's got Jennifer Love Hewitt in it and Seth Green and a couple of other familiar faces. Um, I'm going to pick that for the pod sometime because I, I am fond of that one. All right. Lastly. Tom Hanks, ever seen this guy in anything, Brian? I've seen a few, not as many as you have. That's right. I've seen every Tom Hanks movie. So I was thinking, what is my favorite live action Tom Hanks movie that isn't that thing you do? And since that knocks out the Toy Stories, I came up with Cloud Atlas, uh, which I've only seen once, but I really, really loved when I saw it. So obviously plenty of other great ones out there, but... Brian, I know you're fond. I think, didn't you pick Castaway as your number one when we did our top five Tom Hanks movies? That is a good pick. I'll go with that. Obviously, I like Forrest Gump too, but uh, yeah, Castaway is good. And since we recorded The Odyssey, I've been kicking myself. Man, it would have been good to do a violent ends between those two. Wait, between which two? Um, Castaway and The Odyssey. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. All right, Brian, so... I also gave you a list of a bunch of other people. I could shout out some. I've, I've already done some. Is there any particular ones that you wanted to call out? Oh, so the guy who plays Del Paxton, the old jazz musician, that mm -hmm. actor is Bill Cobbs. And I recognized him because he's one of the old guys who works at the museum in the Night at the Museum movies. That's right. Yeah, that's I. I remember seeing him there. For some reason, that made me think he was like this really well-regarded actor because the other people who are there. Yeah, it's Dick Van Dyke and Mickey Rooney. So like 
big stars and i thought the same thing it's like to me it would have made sense to cast like sydney poitier if he was still alive or like maybe morgan freeman yeah i could have seen that because he's been in some stuff but he's not a big name like the other ones yeah he's not at that level yeah we shouted out some last week a couple i want to throw out there kevin pollack who uh plays bosvik koss he's one of the usual suspects in the usual suspects Alex Rocco, he plays the Playtone label founder. He's, we've actually talked about him on The Goods before, Brian, because he plays the kumquat chief in Dudley Do-Right, the gravelly-voiced fake Indian tribe chief in that movie, Brian. (laughs) He's also in The Godfather, and he, I forget, he's one of the guys whose names gets in, in one of the famous quotes, but he appears in that too. Right. And I see you put Ged Watanabe on the list, who I recognized him from UHF. Oh, is he in UHF? He plays Cooney, the martial arts dojo owner who lives next door to Weird Al. He also is a voice actor in Mulan, and he plays the very problematic character of Long Duck Dong in Sixteen Candles. (laughs) That whole movie is problematic. Yeah. That particularly, but yeah. Yes, you're right. Gotta say, Brian Cranston... He's there as astronaut Gus Grissom. And I think we both have the same answer for what we know him from. And that's Malcolm in the middle. Right. Or uh, the one and only Ivan. Yeah. Argo. But no, it's I I like it when we can tie together that thing you do and Breaking Bad is the two things. The thing that Dan always brings up and the thing that Brian always brings (laughs) up. Yep. Yeah, it was surprising that he was he was there in a very brief part. Yeah. Last shout out, Rita Wilson. If you've never seen Sleepless in Seattle, she has this hilarious monologue about uh, what's the other New Year's Night movie? An Affair to Remember. That's what it is. An Affair to Remember. She has a monologue about An Affair to Remember that's very, very funny in Sleepless in Seattle. So, But that's my uh, my cast deep dive. Any others you wanted to call out before we moved on, Brian? No, but it's a good cast overall. I guess Giovanni Ribisi, we didn't say. Yeah, yeah. And he's in a lot of stuff. He's in Avatar. Um, let me see if I can find the other one I was thinking of. He plays Phoebe's brother in Friends, and he's in Lost in Translation, too. He's good in that. Oh, Saving Private Ryan with Tom Hanks also. Oh, yeah, yeah. I also saw several of them were in the movie A Million Ways to Die in the West. Which interesting. is a Seth MacFarlane movie. I didn't think it was very good, but interesting that several of them from that thing you do popped up there. Huh. And a lot of them have appeared in Jonathan Demi projects too, since you know he he was involved in it. But Alright, so next up, Brian, the sequel pitch. I asked you to try and come up with a pitch for a sequel. Right. So I did I I rubbed my noodles together and i've got a little bit of something and so i was thinking uh, it's a legacy sequel so that thing you do is a ways in the past so the the title that i came up with is that thing you did oh and to me that sounds like a horror movie title so i think <laughs> somebody feels slighted that the the wonders went south and i think it would be good if it were chad like chad's story <laughs> The Chad Revenge. Yeah. Giovanni Ribisi, more prominent. That's good. I like that. That That's about all I got. 
So I want to see um, a prequel. We got it. We know what happens to all the characters, but I want to see like how did Mr. White and how did Playtone actually get founded? Like what's what's the story there? And that one I would want to see is more of like a over the top uh, musical biopic cliche with like drugs and backstabbings and bad guys and stuff. I think that could be fun. I also toyed with the idea of could you do a mockumentary of that thing you do like now in present day legacy sequel, but it's uh, as if a documentary as if it really happened. I feel like there's some potential there. I just don't know exactly how you'd construct it. That could be interesting. Part of the problem with doing a sequel is that you have you, you learn what happens to everyone in the title cards, but that didn't stop American Graffiti from doing a totally insane sequel. So I'm sure <laughs> you could cook up something for that thing you do. What about have you ever seen and I haven't seen it, so I don't know exactly how it is, but there's a movie called The Ruggles. Does that ring a bell for you? Isn't it The Rudels? I've just seen how it's written, so I'm I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but it's got uh, Eric Idle and maybe some other members of Monty Python, and it's like, I think it's a mockumentary about a group that's like the Beatles. It is, yeah. It's called All You Need Is Cash, so I think that kind of gives it away. Okay. It's subtitled that, I mean. And I think there was something in it that either they did a sequel or it's part of it, but there was another one, Money Can't Buy Me Lunch or something. <laughs> or Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was the name of the sequel, I see, yeah. Okay. okay. And so, right, it just, it sounds like that might be the tree that you're barking up. Yeah. All right, Brian, we're getting near the end of the list of topics, although every, each of these topics, I'm having to restrain myself from, from just going on and on. <laughs> so let's talk about the soundtrack. So one of the things I asked you to do was to go look up the soundtrack and listen to all 15 tracks. So were you able to do this, Brian? Yes, I listened through it. So what were some of your reactions? I liked that alternate, that thing you do. It made me think about other popular singers who do songs that are like follow-ups and reference previous hits that they've made. Right. So this is the one that's called I Need You, That Thing You Do. And it's sometimes credited to the herdsmen and sometimes credited to the wonders, depending on different sources. But you... So you're talking about songs that reference each other. Yeah, like Megan Trainer with um, Your Lips Are Moving. She talks about bass from All About That Bass. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or another one is, I think it's by The Platters or The Dippers, some doo-wop group. But they sang Up On The Roof, and then later they have a song, which might even be better known, called Under The Boardwalk. But the way that Under the Boardwalk starts off is when it, when the sun's so hot, it melts the tar up on the roof. So it's like you can't be up on the roof anymore. You got to go somewhere else. So what's the what's the next song? What do, what do you do next? Oh, well, you go Under the Boardwalk. I like that. Yeah, that's good. What about you? Standouts from the album that maybe we only hear snippets of in the movie? Yeah, so there's 15 tracks. Most of them are by other artists in the Playtone Galaxy of Stars, as they call it. And then there's a, several of the Wonders songs that you hear throughout the movie, something like five of them. So I think most of them you can tie to real life things as like inspired by. And I tried to come up with some of those. So like there's I want you to know when you hold my hand, you hold my heart by the fake band called the Chantrelines. One of two songs written by Tom Hanks, by the way on the soundtrack. 
And I think that's basically the Shirelles or the Supremes. Um, the, the one that they play when they do the montage of them in the state fair is called Voyage Around the Moon by the Saturn Five. And I think that's kind of doing either like Pipeline by the Shantays or Telstar by the Tornadoes. I think you would probably recognize those songs if you heard them. I think I know Telstar. I, so that's an instrumental, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think when I was in middle school, I got an album by Hot Butter, which is the like synth group that recorded Popcorn. Yeah, they did Popcorn. Yeah. In the like one of the first synth hits. And this album has a bunch of other tracks that are in synth style. And it, I think Telstar on the synth is on that album. Okay. And I liked that they threw a Herdsman song in there. Just a song they attributed to the Herdsman. There's also a band that this would be interesting is like covering the band that's rising at the same time as the Wonders and how they cross paths. But the Vicksburgs gets mentioned a few times. And we hear one of their songs on the radio for like three seconds in the movie. But we get a full version of that song called Drive Faster. And so I like that they had those. It makes me wish that we could have heard all of like the soundtrack that's instead of just 15 tracks is like 25 tracks or 30 tracks that are all the other things that we hear just snippets of on there. Because we get some of them, but not all of them. So a couple that I would have heard more of that I would have loved to have heard more of. We don't get a ballad version of that thing you do, like the originally rehearsed slow version. And I'm sure people have covered it in that style on YouTube, but I want to hear it with the original band. I also really want to hear the college talent show version, but like without any of the voices over it. So I can just jam to like that version, that live version. I'd like to hear the mariachi group from the talent show on the soundtrack. That's another good one. I'd hear that. And then like the girl group there that sings, I can hear the river flowing. I also think that uh, the I am Spartacus duet that we hear a little bit of with between Guy and Del Paxson at the end is good. And I want to hear more of that, too, because mm-hmm. th- we get a Del Paxton song on the soundtrack. But I would have heard like that kind of culminating one, too. So if anybody wants to get significant sums of my money go and produce a like extended version of the that thing you do soundtrack and sell it to me (laughs) all right last thing i wanted to talk about um adam schlesinger so big reason i love this movie is the song is so so good written by adam schlesinger sung by mike viola adam schlesinger played the bass on the demo he won it in a contest He was something like early 20s and had just signed a label deal with the band Fountains of Wayne, which would be his his claim to fame. So, Brian, I sent you a couple of Adam Schlesinger songs. Did did you get a chance to listen to any of them? Yeah, I played several of these. So any particular ones stand out to you that you enjoyed that I sent you? Oh, Text Me Merry Christmas. I have heard that one before. It was in the Disney Castle Christmas show uh, the last couple years. Uh, I love that song. My favorite Christmas song of the 2010s, probably. Right up there with Kelly Clarkson's uh, Underneath the Tree. Very funny satire of how over the top we get with the Christmas messages. But yeah, so... Fountains of Wayne is probably in my top five favorite musical musical artists. I love all their albums and, you know, Stacy's mom classic, but that whole album is so good. It's called welcome interstate managers. 
and hack and sack is on there it's a perfect song i just really love adam schlesinger and he he what he was best at was he could like take any style and write a very convincing song in that style so his magnum opus might be he was one of the lead songwriters on the show crazy ex-girlfriend so did you ever watch crazy ex-girlfriend brian i've never seen that no so it's a musical show and each week they would have one or two songs and they would be new songs every week and they would be in a hundred different styles and like spoofing different things just for years on end they they made this show and he he contributed so much i think my favorite song from that um i haven't watched the whole thing i've watched uh, like one and a half seasons out of the four. But my favorite is he does this piano man spoof called What'll It Be, which is really good. And like another thing about Adam Schlesinger is that he always walks a fine line between irony and sincerity. And to me, this is one of the peak examples of that because it's like a heartfelt song, but it's also making fun of this guy who's just at a bar singing and like the concept of that being kind of pathetic. And yeah. Adam Schlesinger, he died from uh, COVID in 2020, as we said. And to me, just heartbreaking because he was so prolific and still doing stuff. And, you know, he did a lot, but I I really was sad that he's not going to be around anymore. And he's always been, or at least he was until he died, at the top of my list of the thought exercise. If you could have lunch with one person, who would it be? And for me, it was always him and John Green were one and two at the top of my list in some order. Have you thought about that, Brian? If you could have lunch with one person, who would it be? Oh, it's tough. I I don't know. I feel like that's just a lot of pressure. I mean, because I also feel like there's an uh, aspect of the community episode where Troy meets LeVar Burton. It's like, oh. what if you are just a letdown to this person? Like, what do you have to say to them that's going to be worth their time? Yeah, interesting. So it's like, you can't, what is it? What does he say in there? You can't disappoint a picture. <laughs> I just wanted a picture. I love community because, yeah, like if you weird Al or something like that, right. if you got lunch with him, right. you'd be like, freeze up. I have gotten to talk to him very briefly at a convention and, and got a picture. And I think that was good. That was a good exchange. That was enough. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, I do have a bunch of other things that I could I feel like I could talk more about. I'm going to write a review of it for the goods and maybe I'll do some supplementary stuff in there beyond just the review, which I've only done one or two times. But, you know, this is the kind of movie that demands it for me. Any other closing that thing you do thoughts, Brian, before we we move on to, I think I don't want to spoil it, but a theme month. Is that right? Yep, that's the plan. So I, I would still like to know what the thing is that was done. Oh, yes. So I mentioned something I, I said it was like an ineffable quality that attracts you to someone. I think also I, I should have said, and it's very much worth saying that I think Hanks is playing on the 1960s tradition of things being vague enough that it sounds like it's about sex, but isn't explicitly about sex. And I think that thing you do is also very much that. Right. Yeah, I, I came down there as well. Did you have anything else? You Any other speculation on the matter? No, not really. But yes, what we're going to do next on the podcast is we're going to dive into movies about making movies month. And it may not perfectly overlap with a calendar month, but 
we're going to get a slate of films about filmmaking and media production, some based on real movies that have been made and the story behind their production and some that are fictional. And I've been excited for this for a while. So all of them are movies about movies, regard like no other requirements. It doesn't have to be real or fake or anything like that. It has to okay. be about making movies. So about a making, movie has okay. to get made. Okay, gotcha. There's a scene of that in that thing you do. It's like a back backdoor pilot. Exactly. And also I thought all the television production stuff you've qualified it too. Okay. Are you ready to share what the very first movie about making movies month is? M A M M M. Yes. So I thought I'd kick it off with a movie that has some shared connective tissue with the greatest show on earth that we watched recently. And this is Super 8, mm. which was kind of a collaboration between Steven Spielberg and J.J. Abrams. And I think it really reflects both of their styles. Like, it's it's just as much a Spielberg movie as it is a J.J. Abrams movie. And that creates some interesting synergy. And... Yeah, I saw it back when it came out. I think it's 2011 or 2012. I've never seen this one, but I've definitely heard of it. Yeah, so I think it'll be good to revisit and to share it with you for the first time. And I'm interested and excited to talk about it. Cool. Well, Brian, thank you for indulging me on like a, a month and a half of birthday talk, in particular two episodes of That Thing You Do. Listeners, thank you for bearing with me and, and for doing this deep dive with us here. And this has been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you, Tom Hanks, for making some of my favorite movies, in particular, my favorite movie of all time, That Thing You Do. Thank you, Adam Schlesinger, RIP, for writing some of my favorite songs of all time, being my favorite songwriter. It's just great when a project brings it all together. Your favorite actor, favorite songwriter, great script, makes your favorite movie. So Yeah, it's good. I'll say I've been continuing to play the new zelda game tears of the kingdom and yesterday i completed a side mission where you have to find a horse somewhere on the map who's unusually big and i finally caught the big horse and i i took it back to the stable and i named it tom hanks <laughs> because it's big oh very good classic all right brian thanks and i'll see you next week as we kick off movies about making movie month thanks listeners bye everybody bye